Hey, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. We're going to be starting off with ketamine as it heads off right against morphine for acute pain, then the magic of specialty radiologists. After that, the journal feed does a quick review on DVTs, then emergency medicine doctors might kind of suck at the hints exam, and finally, driving after your night shifts. It could be dangerous. This is the audio version of the past week's journal feed summaries, which this week were brought to you by the wise Aaron Lacey, Kevin Stouffer, and Clay Smith. So let's get down to the first article, which was titled Low-Dose Ketamine for Acute Pain Control in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. So while pain can be kind of ominous, and of course everybody's trying to cut down on their opioid use, acute pain of course still needs to be treated. Morphine is the time-old classic, but ketamine is kind of a new up-and-comer. There was a similar meta-analysis to this, comparing the two, which only included, unfortunately, only three RCTs. So what we have here is a bigger and better study. And so let's see how well ketamine does at low dose for pain. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of eight RCTs this time, with 1,200 patients who received either low-dose ketamine IV at 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kg, which was most often 0.3, or morphine IV at 0.1 milligrams per kg in the emergency department for acute pain. Now there is no difference in acute pain control at 15, 30, 45, or even 60 minutes. But morphine went on to be a little bit better over 60 minutes, although this was based on the results of just one study. Rescue doses were the same in both groups. Also, there's no difference in adverse outcomes of nausea or hypoxia. Fallbacks to this study were that one of the studies included was a non-peer-reviewed abstract, and overall certainty of all of the evidence was still pretty low. Most docs will be more comfortable with the tried-and-true morphine that they're familiar with. Do you think you'll try giving ketamine a shot? In a spoonful, low-dose IV ketamine performed as well as IV morphine for pain control at time points less than 60 minutes. Both had similar rates of nausea and hypoxia. Then we have the second article, which was titled Utility of Computed Tomography Overreading and Abdominal Ultrasound in Children with Suspected Appendicitis and Non-Diagnostic Computed Tomography at Community Hospitals out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. As imaging has gotten better, the medical community has sort of strayed away from appendicitis as a clinical diagnosis. It's still done, of course, but now that we have such good imaging and even ultrasound that is honestly without radiation and quite convenient, it's just done less. But when the ultrasound is non-diagnostic or equivocal, that doesn't mean there's no appendicitis. And the same goes for CT. So when this happens to you, you need to know what to do. This study looked at 184 children transferred to a pediatric center after getting a CT for appendicitis at a community hospital. And they also received ultrasounds when they arrived at the pediatric center. The goal of the study was to evaluate the utility of reinterpretation of the outside community hospital scans by pediatric radiologists, and to see what the value is of doing a right lower quadrant ultrasound for the diagnosis of acute appendicitis. Now, almost 60% of the outside community hospital scans were read as non-diagnostic or equivocal. But when they were reinterpreted by a pediatric radiologist, there was a definite answer given in 88% of cases, leaving only 12% to remain equivocal. And about 20% of the cases were positive. 
All cases also had a right lower quadrant ultrasound, and this performed slightly better than CT reinterpretation, with only 8% remaining equivocal. This probably means that equivocal scans at community hospitals should probably be reviewed by a pediatric radiologist, and that ultrasound performs quite well in children. This is a great opportunity for telemedicine. If you had an equivocal scan, and then you could send it on to a specialist radiologist if need be, then that would be excellent. Either way, though, if you work at a community shop, you best be wary of getting an equivocal scan, or even a negative scan for that matter if your suspicion is still high. In a spoonful, when pediatric radiologists reinterpreted CT scans thought to be equivocal for pediatric cases of appendicitis, read originally by community radiologists, they were able to provide a definite diagnosis 88% of the time, and getting an ultrasound was even more accurate. Next was the third article titled Diagnosis and Treatment of Lower Extremity Venous Thromboembolism, a Review out of the JAMA. Think about how often you think about how often your patient might have a DVT. If your answer is quite a bit, then we've got a great review for you to help you keep on top of the literature. These authors did a systematic review and siphoned through a whopping 2,100 articles over the last five years alone, and we've summarized it down to a spoonful just for you. So first off, let's take a little look at epidemiology. An isolated distal DVT, so probably in the calf, carries an all-cause mortality rate of 4.6 per 100 person years. And the risk factors for DVTs are all the things that you already know and love, like obesity, pregnancy, malignancy, major surgery, diabetes, chronic lung disease, heart failure, and of course more. Next is making that diagnosis. Unfortunately, a low pretest probability by decision aids, or D-dimers, does not rule out DVTs by themselves, and these two things should always be used together. Positive findings on either is call for an ultrasound, though. So using a well score is good to categorize if they are high or low risk, but remember it's not meant for inpatients. And if that patient is low to moderate risk by the well score, that is less than three points, then use an age-adjusted D-dimer to further risk stratify them. And if the D-dimer is also negative and the wells is less than three, then DVT is essentially off the table. But any positive D-dimer is going to warrant an ultrasound. And if the well score is three or more, then just skip the D-dimer and get the ultrasound. For ultrasound, a whole leg ultrasound is preferred. The two-point tests should be repeated at five to seven days if they're negative. By way of treatment, DOACs are non-inferior to warfarin and cause less bleeding. The biggest barrier to DOACs is cost, though. Low molecular weight heparin is still going to be used in your pregnant patients and those with GI malignancies. But DOACs can be used in your non-GI malignancies. Most patients with DVTs are going to be managed as outpatients with follow-up for which you'd think that maybe aspirin could cut it, but it just doesn't. There are much higher rates of recurrence with aspirin than with Noax. If you feel like you could go the extra mile and get a catheter-directed thrombolysis, which sounds tempting, and of course endovascular procedures are really cool, but remember that this doesn't reduce the rates of recurrence or post-thrombotic syndrome, and may even increase the risk of bleeding. If you'd like to see a table for the recommended treatments and an algorithm for DVTs, then those are both from the paper and up on the blog. Following that, we have the fourth article titled The Diagnostic Accuracy of the Hints Exam in the Emergency Department, a Retrospective Chart Review out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Dizzy patients often feel like enough to make your head spin. The journal feed has covered this before, and that's that the Hints Exam is a great test. It just doesn't seem to tend to perform as well in the hands of emergency physicians. And who can blame you? It's really complicated, even after refreshing your memory with a YouTube video. 
But then you're kind of reminded of, wait, how many types of nystagmus are there? And the fast beat is what decides the direction. And did they saccade or did you saccade when you turned their head? And an abnormal head impulse is, is, is wait, that's good? Ah, oh, gah, now I'm dizzy. Okay, let's just review it. The hints exam should only be done on patients with acute vestibular syndrome. And that is recent continuous vertigo associated with gait unsteadiness, nausea or vomiting, and nystagmus. That means that if it looks like BPPV, something that is not continuous, then you shouldn't do the HITS exam. The HINTS exam and the Epley maneuver of the Dix-Hallpike should not be indicated in the same patient. So let's quickly go over the different parts of the test. Now, first, let's do the head impulse. Normally, if you quickly turn your head, then your eyes will stay rock-solidly fixed on the same point. With peripheral vertigo, they're not getting the right external input, and so they're not going to react very well when your head turns, so they might have to do a quick saccade to kind of catch up with the movement. If the problem is central, then the ears are working just fine and the eyes stay on target. Since you want patients to have peripheral problems, good news is an abnormal test when they have to do the catch-up saccade, which is why you only want to do this on the right patients, because if you do this on a healthy person, then they'll test as though they have central vertigo. Next is nystagmus. Unidirectional horizontal nystagmus plus or minus a rotational component is good because this suggests a peripheral cause. Anything else is bad and might mean a central problem. And lastly, the test of skew, which you're looking for a vertical deviation followed by correction with a cover-uncover test. If you'd like to see lovely examples of all of these test components in a video format, then we have links to great YouTube videos up on the blog, which you can save for later before your next dizzy complaint. Now let's get on to the actual study and see why reviewing the exam might have been a good idea. This was a retrospective study of 2,300 dizzy, vertiginous, lightheaded, or unstable patients at a single center. At this hospital, the HINTS exam was commonly used, documented in 450 of these cases. The catch is that in this retrospective review, emergency physicians misapplied the test in 97% of cases, so they used it when they shouldn't have on patients without acute vestibular syndrome, which again is continuous with nystagmus and an unsteady gait. The most commonly missing sign was nystagmus. Now, in the only 14 patients who got the test appropriately, five were found to have central causes by hints, and the doctors were wrong on all counts. A full half of the patients got the hints exam and the Dix-Hallpike performed on them, which, as we said before, doesn't make any sense because the indications are different. Now, I know what you're thinking is that patients don't always give a clear history, and many of them with intermittent symptoms will kind of communicate that they feel sort of off continuously, but you've just kind of got to suss it out. Six of the 450 patients did actually have vertigo due to a central cause. Four had strokes, one had a TIA, and one had MS. And yet none of them had a documented acute vestibular syndrome. This study is, of course, very limited by being retrospective. And so it's impossible to say if it simply wasn't recorded or if it truly wasn't there. But either way, it's a little bit scary. And even if retrospective studies are not the best way to study the accuracy of the HINTS exam. Regardless, though, there's no good evidence to show that emergency physicians use the HINTS exam well. But don't despair, or at least not until we get a good prospective study of this that comes out looking at it. For now, stay skeptical. And if you know at least who to do the test on, then I think you're doing great. Also, a few extra MRIs just isn't a failure. 
In a spoonful, emergency physicians may not apply the HINTS exam to the correct patients, and when they did, they may not be doing it very well. And finally, the fifth article titled The Association of Sleep Hygiene and Drowsiness with Adverse Driving Events in Emergency Medicine Residents out of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. Sleep deprivation is real. You know it, I know it, we've all felt it. And so is poor sleep hygiene. Both of these decrease your restfulness and have been associated with driving-related adverse events. The worst culprit of, to no one's surprise, is night shifts. One study showed that 80% of near crashes and 70% of all motor vehicle collisions involving emergency physicians came after a night shift. This paper sought to look at essentially the same thing, but in residence, since they're doctors too, and the first step to solving a problem is usually identifying that there is one. So they had 50 postgraduate emergency medicine residents who completed self-administered surveys after working night shifts at a community hospital. These surveys were made up of 15 yes or no questions related to dangerous driving. Earlier trainees in years one and two reported adverse events 88% of the time from their drives, averaging 2.8 events per drive. For more senior residents in their third and fourth years, they reported a bit less at 79% and 75% of the time respectively, with 2.6 and 1.3 events per drive. Now, most of these events from the questionnaire are actually no joke either. These are things that you really shouldn't do while driving, such as shifting out of your lane, resting your eyes, driving over the rumble strip, having a near crash. And the only benign one from the list that I saw was really just doing something to keep yourself awake, like listening to loud music or calling someone. So when you average almost three of these per drive, I'm a little bit worried. I myself drove home from a night shift just last week and managed to hit two hours of traffic on the ride home, and I had a good four or five of those adverse events on my drive. So employers should really take this seriously and consider stepping in with things like carpooling, taxi services, or post-shift sleeping rooms to keep trainees and the public safe. In a spoonful, emergency medicine residents who drove after night shifts were certainly at risk for motor vehicle crashes, with more junior trainees being more at risk. All right, that's it, guys. Let's do a quick review recap of everything that we covered. First off, we saw that low-dose ketamine takes on morphine for pain control, and it came out as a draw, with both being equal at less than 60 minutes. Next, if the scan read equivocal or non-diagnostic for a pediatric appendicitis, review by a pediatric radiologist will clear it up 88% of the time, or an ultrasound did even better than that. Third, hopefully you've learned something about your treatment and diagnosis of DVTs. Then, from the fourth article, if you take away anything about the HINTS exam, it's that it should only be done on patients with acute vestibular syndrome, so those with continuous symptoms, nystagmus, and gait unsteadiness. And fifth, a tired doctor is a dangerous doctor on the road, with more than 80% reporting multiple dangerous driving events after night shifts. And so that's it, and since you've already earned them, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. If you'd like them for yourself, you can go to journalfeed.org and check out all the details for that. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at the same place on our website. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.